Well, once again, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight as we head into the final chapter of this marvelous epistle. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read and consider verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 this evening. We'll read God's word first and then we'll pray as we ask for his blessing in our time studying it together. So this is God's holy word. Hear it. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Oh, Lord God, like those Greeks long, long ago, we would see Jesus. And not merely to see him as he comes to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Yes, to see that, but more than that, to believe and trust him and worship him as Lord and God, even as Doubting Thomas proclaimed. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you wield your word with might and with force in our hearts, and would you grant us further insight and illumination into your holy word tonight, and would you do it for your glory? We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this wonderful letter, as we've said before, is essentially Paul's handbook of Christianity, Christianity 101. And this second half of the letter is Paul's, in Paul's theology, it's his theology applied. It's his, how then shall we live section. And if you remember, back in Ephesians 5, verse 18, he, he essentially sets the the theme verse for his exposition in the verses to come. It's that broad exhortation that he said there in verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. And part of the way, remember, that we do that is by speaking Scripture to one another. We thought about that in last Lord's Day evening sermon and especially in the prior sermon before that, by speaking Scripture to one another, by singing Scripture to one another, and also in submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see that in verse 21 of Ephesians 5. So do these things, Paul says, address, exhort, encourage, sing, submit. And as you do that, God will pour out his Holy Spirit and he will fill you with his love and he will fill you with his power and with his grace so that you may live the life that you're called to live as his redeemed people. Now, we don't want to make this overly mechanistic. We don't want to be uh, guilty of the, the, the error of ex opere operato, that the things magically happen merely by the doing of the deed. But at the same time, we do believe in the means of grace, don't we? We believe that grace is conveyed, God's grace is conveyed through certain instrumentalities, through certain means, according to Scripture. And so, as you do these things, Paul says, God, in his grace, continues to fill you with his Spirit. As you exhort, as you sing, as you submit, as you encourage, as you do this, God will fill you with his Spirit And we need the power of his spirit to live the life of holiness that we must pursue. And so, level one, if you will, level one of Paul's exhortation there as he gets into chapter five, level one, broad, very broad exhortation to the whole of the congregation. He's saying, be filled with the spirit. And then he drills down a little further into more specificity as he begins to address households. So you are filled with the spirit by submitting to one another. So what does that look like? Well, Paul takes it further down into some additional categories of specificity. Be filled with the Spirit, 
And he starts by applying that to the, the category of the church or the congregation, right, in general. Sing, submit to one another. We saw that in verses uh, 18 and 19 and 21 and so forth. Last time, last week, we saw it applied more narrowly. Then he drills down a little more, a little further into his specificity, this time within the sphere of the household or the family. We saw it applied um, husbands and wives last week within the context of a household, within the context of a marriage. Uh, next week, God willing, we'll see slaves and masters and their relationship to one another. But here today, as Paul continues to get specific in his household categories and his applications to these specific categories, we see him speaking to the relation of children and parents. How shall we then live together as the body of Christ, as his people? That's what Paul's answering in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. And here, again, he's drilling down and giving some attention to specific social categories of life within the church. Whole congregation then married people, and now children, within the, and fathers within, and parents within the context of the family. We see here the kingship of Jesus applied to every facet of our lives. That's what Paul's up to in these latter chapters of Ephesians. So let's see. Let's see what the Lord has to say, not only to the, the household of God of all of us in toto, but also, if you like, to the little churches, the little churches within our charge, within the household of God within our homes and families. So two simple headings to outline our study tonight. Paul gives, very simply, first, an exhortation to children, and then secondly, an exhortation to parents. So let's look first at verses 1, 2, and 3, an exhortation to children. Now remember, Paul writes this letter. He's in prison. A messenger carries his letter to Ephesus after he's dictated it or after he's written it. A messenger carries it from his prison cell off to the village, off to the town of Ephesus in Asia Minor, and it gets read out loud to the congregation in their assembled gathering. Uh, Maybe an elder stands up and reads it. Maybe an evangelist like Timothy stands up and reads it. But in any case, they're reading this letter out loud. It's as if Paul, as they do so, it's as if Paul were speaking directly to them and giving them that direct exhortation in their midst. Notice then, as others have pointed out, that Paul speaks directly to the children in the congregation. He doesn't speak to the parents merely about the children. Elder Paul, Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul addresses the children directly in the midst of the assembly of the saints. There's a lesson for us. We call our children covenant children, don't we? We ought to mean it. It's not just a nice theologically sounding name that we give the kids in our church in order to show off how reformed we are and show off our reformed bona fides. But we actually do believe they are members of the covenant community because they're born to Christian parents and we're rearing them in the faith and and, and that's attested to by virtue of their baptism. Children, if you're in the church, and you are in the church, Paul says, so this is what the Lord expects of you. He assumes they are present in assembled worship. And, you know, my interest here is not so much to argue with our invisible Baptist friends, right? We, we have folks in our congregation who have credo-Baptist convictions, and we're glad they're part of our church family. I'm not interested in using this text as a, as a cudgel with which to beat them tonight. Uh, someone more ornery can do that maybe another time. But rather, I want to see here the great exhortations for our children and their parents. Boys and girls, as you're here tonight, listen. You're part of the church, too. This isn't just mom and dad's church. This isn't just grandma and grandpa's church. 
Boys and girls, this is your church. Youth and young adults, young people, this is your church. This isn't just the grown-up worship service. This isn't just big church. This is for you as well. You're not just the church of tomorrow. You are the church of right now. You belong here, worshiping God right along with all of us. Yes, I know, some of the things that we talk about, some of the things we discuss up here from the pulpit can be a little hard to understand. I get it. It can be tough to pay attention to a long sermon. I understand. Maybe you don't always know the music that we sing. That's okay. We'll help you. So, boys and girls, you try your best. Bring your Bibles with you to church, if you can remember. Follow along when we read the scripture passages. Mom and dad, y'all help them. Help them them find the right pages. Point out the verse with your finger. Help them read along. Boys and girls, a lot of the things that we talk about can be tough to understand. A lot of it makes more sense for the grown-ups. It can be really difficult to track along with. I get that. But a lot of what we say is very much about you and very much for you, too. Now, we don't do it all the time. We don't do it robotically, but you'll notice this, that a lot of times I'll say this, or Pastor Wilborn will say this, and we'll say, boys and girls, listen to this, because there's something here in the Bible that's especially here for you, and it's especially there for you to help you. God is always speaking to you in every worship service whenever you read your Bible, but today, notice especially in verses 1, 2, and 3 here of chapter 6, these verses, boys and girls, are especially for you tonight. Especially, God is addressing you particularly this evening. Kids, what does the Bible say about you in chapter 6, verse 1? You see it there? Children, obey your parents. That's not very hard to understand. You know what that means, children, obey your parents. But it's a lot harder to do sometimes, isn't it? It's not hard to understand, but it's a lot harder to do. Well, the Lord God wants you to listen and do what you are told by mom and dad. And look again at verse 1. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord. You see that little phrase? Or you hear that little phrase, in the Lord? It's very important. You are disciples. You know what a disciple is? I bet you a lot of you do. Your moms and dads have probably been explaining it to you. What's a disciple? Well, it's someone who is learning something. Someone who's being taught something. You are disciples of Jesus because that's exactly what you're doing here. In in worship, as we're worshiping together, in Sunday school, when you're with your teachers, in your catechism classes on Wednesday night, what are you learning about? You're learning about the Lord Jesus. Your moms, your dads, they're teaching you about Jesus at home. Your pastors and your elders are instructing you about Jesus. Uh, A number of of our folks, of our younger folks, went through the communicants class recently, and your elders were teaching you about what it means to be a church member and to be a follower, a faithful, sincere follower of the Lord Jesus and what it means when you're saying yes to those church membership vows potentially. And that's what you are. You are young disciples. We are in the business of making disciples in this place. And so the Apostle Paul says to you, boys and girls of every age, obeying your parents is part of what it means for you to love and follow Jesus, to be a disciple. If you ever wonder what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, yes, it involves coming to worship and reading your Bible and praying and singing along in the worship services. It means all that. Absolutely, it means all that. But in addition to that, part of what it means to be a disciple for you at your young age, it means that you are to obey your mothers and fathers. That's what it means. He says to obey them in the Lord. Now, now who, who are your parents in the Lord? What does is, what is the Apostle Paul mean there? Is that, is that someone different than your real parents? Uh, something like a, like a godparent? Or does it mean some other Christian authority figures in your life, like, a, like an elder or a pastor? 
Well, over the years, lots of different people have understood it lots of different ways. But it seems like the most natural understanding of of the Greek syntax here is that Paul is referring to ordinary biological parents. And he's saying, children, as your parents are instructing you in the things that pertain to God and the things that pertain to Scripture, you should heed them. You should obey them. Now, some, some relationships are complicated. And we've got lots of folks in this congregation who know that all too well. Uh, If your parents are telling you to sin, you must not obey them. That's contrary to what the Lord wants. That is not what the Lord wants. But assuming that we're not dealing with extreme situations, assuming that your moms and dads are not encouraging you to sin and leading you down a path to sin, assuming we're not dealing with that, as your parents are raising you to be responsible, honorable young people, they want you to honor the Lord Jesus in the way you live. Obey them in the Lord. Those, those things that are consistent with Christ and consistent with his word. If you know, think back to Luke chapter 2. As the Lord Jesus is growing up, he's a boy. He's probably around age 12, 13, 14, something like that in Luke chapter 2. He'd, he'd gone to Jerusalem. He'd gone to the temple with Joseph and Mary. And they go home to Nazareth. And Luke tells us that he, Jesus, was submissive to them. The Lord Jesus obeying his father and his mother. And if you follow Jesus, boys and girls, if you follow the Lord Jesus, if you're seeking to love him, you should do the same too. Jesus once said in John chapter 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now kids, I understand, obeying your parents is sometimes hard, yes, and sometimes we still rebel against them. We slip up, we sin, we do what we should not do, we go against their instructions. But if your heart is truly changed, if you're really born again, If you're born from above as a believer in Jesus, you'll find your heart changing. You'll find that more and more and more you want to please the Lord. And that means that you'll want to honor and respect and love mom and dad and do what they say. That's part of what it means to love Jesus. It's as if Jesus were standing here and you're talking to him. How do you show him that you love him? You show him in part by obeying what mom and dad say. That's how you show that you love the Lord. You follow his commands. Paul even tells us why you should obey your parents. He gives you two reasons there in verses 1, 2, and 3. You see that first reason? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey because this is the right thing to do and everyone knows that. We see this all over the world. It's a global, transcultural, transnational value. It's a universal principle. Even the non-Christian world recognizes this to be true. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. But there's another reason besides that. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, and and then he states that promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul's quoting there from the Ten Commandments. A a lot of you know the Ten Commandments. We just read them a few minutes ago from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And do you remember that commandment that says, honor your father and your mother? That's the fifth commandment. And if you go back, and you can go back again tonight when you get home, and you can read Deuteronomy 5 again, or you can go read Exodus chapter 20 again if you want, and you'll see that there. Moses says there's a promise attached to that command. Follow this command. Honor your father and mother, and life will go well with you, especially Israelite people, as you are preparing to go into the promised land that God is leading you toward. Right, so Paul takes that idea, he takes that idea, children, and he says, that's still true. That's still true. 
When we obey God's will, generally, isn't that the, the thrust of the wisdom literature? Moms and dads, you can attest to that. Generally, when we obey God's will, things tend to go better for us. That's a general biblical principle. And Paul says, children, obey your parents so that things will go well for you. Your parents have wisdom. They have life experience. They know a lot of things that you don't know yet. That's not your fault. You just haven't had much of life happen to you yet. That's okay. That's what they're there for. Listen to them. Trust them. I love how one Bible scholar, he said this. He put it like this. A Christian life under the lordship and the reign of King Jesus is a happy life and a full life. And that's the life Paul wants for you. He doesn't mean that you won't ever suffer. It doesn't mean that tragedy does not sometimes strike. It doesn't mean that you'll never ever be sad. But generally speaking, generally speaking, you will live a long, full, and happy life if you live God's way. Close quote. Now again, we don't have time to get into all of it this evening, but in general, this, is, in, this, is, this idea is what the book of Proverbs is all about. This is what the wisdom literature in the Bible is all about. Proverbs, King Solomon, right? You remember what he, he'll say things like, Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Fear the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. And now here's a lot. He proceeds. Now here's a lot of general advice and a lot of prudence to help you in your new adult life. Some general life principles by which if you heed these things and implement these things, you'll be able to live wisely so that your life will be more pleasant. So what does the Lord God want for you, boys and girls? What does he want for you, children of Covenant Presbyterian Church? Well, quite simply, he wants you to obey your parents in the Lord because Jesus is pleased with you when you do what he says. And he wants you to obey your parents because it's the right thing to do. And he wants you to obey your parents that you may live a full and happy life. And a full and happy life according to the Bible and according to the one who created life, obedience to King Jesus, that's what makes for a full and happy life. So think about that, boys and girls. Think about that as the Lord speaks to you in a very special way from his word tonight, as he gives that direct exhortation to you, children of the congregation, as he's addressing you from the pages of Holy Scripture tonight. So that's the first thing for us to take note of. There's an exhortation to children. But then there's a second thing here. There's also an exhortation to parents. Look with me at verse 4, if you would. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, do notice first that Paul begins by addressing fathers. Fathers, this is not to the exclusion of mothers, as if, as if Paul's giving a warning to dads, but moms, you're off the hook. Go ahead and exasperate your children. It's just about dads here. No, no. Much like when Paul says brethren, right, that's an inclusive term for men and women, even if it has the masculine belonging there in terms of its, its, its verbiage, in terms of the gender, the gendered nature of that word. Uh, just like here, many times when Paul says fathers, it's an inclusive, an inclusive, vocative address to parents. But nevertheless, Paul's a sharp guy. Paul is linguistically savvy, and he knows that by invoking the masculine fathers there, that it connotes a certain weight by invoking that, and rightly so, a certain weight to the dads. Fathers need to lead in the home. If ever there was a time when the men in the American church needed to hear that exhortation, it's today. Men, brothers, 
Husbands, fellow dads, it is our God-given responsibility to set the spiritual tone in our home, to take the lead in nurture and in discipleship. Another pastor, a friend of mine, reminded me a while ago of Harry Reeder. Some of you may know him. He's the senior minister of Briarwood PCA in Birmingham, Alabama. And Pastor Harry, Dr. Reeder, he's fond of saying that pastors, elders, are not supposed to be thermometers, but thermostats when it comes to the spiritual life of the congregation. That is, what he's getting at is they must not merely reflect the spiritual temperature, they must not merely reflect the spiritual status quo, This is how people want it, so I guess that's just how it is, and we'll go along with it. A thermometer. No, he says they ought to be thermostats. They ought to set the temperature, set the ethos, set the spiritual temperature in the life of the congregation. Well, if that applies to the elders in the life of a church, much the same, I think, applies to fathers and husbands in the life of a household. Men, brothers, we must be not be merely spiritual thermometers, the thermostats. Our calling is to set the spiritual tone and temperature in our home, leading our household in Bible reading and prayer, leading them in family devotion, leading them in family worship, just to start at some of the bare basics. By the way, that's a lot less scary and a lot less complicated than it sometimes sounds. I've, I've known more than my fair share of men my age, particularly when they become fathers for the first time, and they start hearing this, this language of, of family worship, and they start to feel the weight of it, and they get really scared. What does that mean? What do I have to do? Do I need to be preparing all kinds of material and, and doing you know, hours and hours of study to get ready for this, week, this nightly exercise with my family? If you're printing bulletins every night, please stop. All right? You're, you're, you're going to hurt yourself. All right? Don't overcomplicate it. If you're not sure where to start when it comes to leading your family and family worship and family devotions, that's fine. Come talk to your elders. We'd love to talk with you about that. It's a simple thing, and it's a wonderful means of grace to your family. And we've all been more and less faithful about it over the years. We've all botched it up over the years. We've all stumbled and had to get back up again and get back into the rhythm and the discipline of doing it. And your elders are here to help you. Your elders are here to encourage you to be a resource for you. So if any of you have questions about that, please come seek out any one of your elders tonight. We'd be happy to talk with you about those things if you need some tips to how, how you might be able to better get into that rhythm in the life of your family. It's a simple thing, and it's a wonderful means of grace to your family. But also notice that as he calls the fathers to lead, it's a positive duty to lead. He also immediately gives a warning. He gives a negative duty there. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. Some translations, depending on which one you're using, say wrath. Or some say, do not exasperate your children. You see Paul's pastoral wisdom there. He he knows men. He knows our inclinations. He knows that some men need a little prompting. Uh, Like Adam in the garden, they can be a little too nonchalant. They can be too passive and want to pass the buck of responsibility and even blame their wife for something. Some men need that prompting. They need a, a little push, a little exhortation, maybe a lot of push, a lot of encouragement. And so Paul says, brothers, lead, lead your wives and lead your children, lead your household. But he also knows that other men will misunderstand and they will misuse this notion of leadership. Some men, the opposite of being apathetic or far too passive, some men are prone to being overbearing and controlling, perhaps borderline tyrannical and thus provoking their children to anger. We must watch out 
We must be on guard against this tendency, brothers. Do we have unrealistic expectations of our children's behavior? Ask yourself that. Yes, we want them to be godly. Yes, we want them to be truthful. We want them to be honorable. We want them to be virtuous. We want our children to be biblically minded. But let us be careful, lest we place unrealistic expectations on them, lest we ultimately heap upon them impossible burdens, like the Pharisees heaping weights upon them, crushing burdens of expected perfection. And in the end, we yield resentful children forever bucking against what they associate with Christian parenting. Yes, I know some children can be, have wicked hearts and they can run astray and they want to blame every bad thing that's ever happened to their life. They want to blame it on the church. They want to blame it on their Christian upbringing. And many times those accusations are utterly unfounded, utterly unwarranted, and utterly illegitimate. But at the same time, there are sometimes cases, aren't there? You know them. You've heard of them. Maybe you've experienced them. I don't know. When overburdensome, borderline tyrannical, overly weighty, unrealistic, heavy models of Christian parenting have yielded resented, resentful and fractured and broken relationships parents between children. Paul gives a warning here. In the earnest and godly desire to cultivate godliness within our children, let us make sure we do not exasperate our children, Paul says. Fathers, we must lead. But let us lead like our Father in heaven, who does not provoke his children to wrath. But rather, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion, so he has mercy on those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 13. So fathers should lead, yes. Hopefully an obvious implication from the text that we are drawing out. That's the positive duty. They should lead. But then also don't provoke a a negative duty, a negative implication. So one positive, lead. One negative, don't provoke, don't exasperate. But then a third and another positive duty, he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or as the King James Version so memorably puts it, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I've always loved that language. Christ's message delivered in our home in a Christ-like manner. That's how one commentator described it. Christ's message delivered in our home in a Christ-like manner. That's how we're to lead, brothers. Note that word discipline, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word there behind discipline is paideia. Uh, That's a word you may know, right? We've got folks in our church who work with paideia academy. Uh, We get words like pedagogy from this Greek root, this root word of paideia. Pedagogy woodenly means the instruction or the training of children. Now, to our modern ears, that word discipline usually carries connotations of punishment. That's probably what pops into your mind when you hear the word discipline. You're you're disciplined for doing something wrong. You get something taken away from you. You get something negative happens to you because you're being disciplined because of some wrong thing or sinful thing you did. Well, actually, the way Paul uses it here, he employs the more positive connotation of discipline. Discipline can mean a a punitive thing, but it can also mean a more positive thing, like the way you discipline your body or you train your body. If you're an athlete and you're training uh, for an athletic exercise or endeavor, probably, perhaps, a better translation might be here the word nurture. As I said, the way an athlete disciplines his body as he's training for a major marathon, we discipline ourselves. We train ourselves for better habits, better routines, better time management. We train ourselves after holiness. It's a positive, formative discipline. That's what Paul means here when he invokes the word discipline or nurture. 
Well, Paul uses that same word, that same word paideia or paideia, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. When he's talking to Timothy, you know that verse well. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's the word he uses there. Same word he uses here. Training. Formative nurture. Same word here as he invokes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Dads, that's our MO. That's our primary tool. Rear our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train them for righteousness. Just like Timothy. Like, just like his mother and his grandmother trained him. As Paul reminds Timothy, we employ the word of God just like Eunice and Lois did to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, just like they did to him. Let us nurture and train our children by pouring the word of God into their lives. I also note, appreciated how one commentator, actually more than one commentator pointed out another way Paul uses this word, that paideia is also used over in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says this, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Did you catch that, the use of that word training there? The grace of God, God paiduo, it trains us. It trains us. The Word of God trains and nurtures us. The grace of God trains us and nurtures us. The Word of God is a means of grace. The point being, brothers and sisters, that we pour the Bible into our children. We pour the Word of God into our children, not merely to produce in them good behavior, but to take them by the hand and to lead them to Christ Jesus, to lead them to the grace of God, that they would love Him all the days of their lives and embrace Him by faith. Let us beware the outward performance mentality of the Pharisees. Let us beware producing well-behaved, excellent household citizens, moral excellency and fine, fine social conformity, yet little ones who are far from Christ and know nothing of his saving grace and his abundant mercies. Let us fear such a production. Notice the other word that Paul uses, uh, the word here translated instruction or admonition, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So nurture is that positive training, that positive discipline, that positive training in righteousness. Admonition is a word of warning. So it's another both and, a positive exhortation, but also an exhortation of warning. That's the same word that's used back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul is referring to Old Testament historical events, talking about the saints of old, and he says, these were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. These were written for our instruction or our admonition. It's a word of warning there. The word of God does train us. The word of God does nurture us. And it must be the whole counsel of God, not just the pleasant-sounding parts. Like Paul exhorted the elders of Ephesus, we also must present the whole counsel of God, not just the pleasant-sounding parts, but the warning parts as well as we pour the Bible into the lives of our children, as we lead them to the grace of Christ, we must help them understand what makes the good news good. As we so often say, the good news makes no sense apart from the bad news. And so we must plead with our children. We must tell them the whole truth, not just the nicer 
more uplifting parts of the truth. We must tell our children, son, daughter, I love you. Flee from sin. Flee from the wrath to come. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. There is great danger. There danger. There is peril in godlessness and worldliness and playing with sin. You dabble with it and you do so to your own peril. You are in great danger if you reject Christ. Not unlike what we were talking about this morning, but telling them the truth and the whole truth is truly the absolutely most loving thing that we could possibly do for them. Children, we love you. Don't dabble with sin. Flee sin and run to the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace him. Trust him by faith. You see, what Paul is providing here for us is a template not merely for good parenting, but more than that, a template for godly parenting. Uh, Gospel parenting, if you'll permit me to use a somewhat trendy phrasing in these days. It's often been repeated. You may have heard this story yourself, but a number of years ago, Donald Barnhouse, who was the, the longtime minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he once speculated in a sermon what it would look like if Satan took over the city of Philadelphia. Here's what he said. If Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at one another. There would be no swearing. The children would all say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every single Sunday to the brim where Christ is not preached. Close quote. Satan is perfectly happy with nice, polite, good-mannered, socially well-adjusted, moral children. What Paul wants and what we must aim for is that Christian children would know the Lord Jesus Christ and want to obey their parents in the Lord because they love the Lord Jesus more than anything and they want to honor him. Our aim, if if I can borrow the language from this morning, the aim of our charge is that we would lead our children with both seriousness and tenderness with both conviction and with patience, leading, not domineering, stewarding. They've been entrusted to us from the Lord, stewarding them, training them toward godliness, teaching them the reality of sin, praying with them, praying for them, and opening the scriptures so that they might find the grace of Christ, and in him they might find life and joy everlasting. That's what Paul is aiming at, to encourage in the Ephesian saints and us as well. He wants courage. He wants leadership and he wants compassion from the fathers and he wants children pointed toward Christ so that those children would find in the Lord Jesus streams of mercy never ceasing and thus they would have transformed hearts that love to please King Jesus and because they love to please King Jesus they would thus love to obey their parents in the Lord. May God do it for his glory and may he do it even here among us. Shall we pray? Oh God, truly, we ask, would you turn the hearts of the children toward the fathers and the hearts of the fathers toward their children and turn all of our hearts toward you, we pray. For the blessing of our families, for the strengthening of the church, for the strengthening of this congregation, for the ingathering of the nations and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our great King. Seal your word to all of our hearts this night that we may contemplate it, ponder it, and treasure it forever. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.